Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Suspension. That's such a good word of the day, isn't it? Nothing personal. Your word of the day is suspension. Who am I talking about? That's right. Miami Heat player Dion Waiters got suspended for a third time this year. They're calling it six games, but I'm calling it forever. I say he will never suit up for this team. He has been a disaster. This wasn't for an edible this time. Remember, he took the entire bag of edibles on a plane cross country and passed out basically in a pool of his own vomit. But that's not why he was suspended. It's more conduct detrimental to the team. The question now, is Pat Riley going to go after his money? Because they could release him, but then they have to pay him all the money. If they try not to pay him, there's going to be a grievance. And if Latrell Sprewell can win, so can Dion Waiters. How is it possible that I placed a bet for you on nothing personal after not losing a pick of the day, and I can't remember, thinking that Lamar Jackson would not beat the Jets by 16 and a half points? For all those who watched the game, you saw what is now the number one quarterback in all of football. It's not even close. He's the MVP of the National Football League over Mahomes. He's a far better quarterback than Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, no matter what anyone thinks or says. And the Baltimore Ravens are a huge threat to actually win the Super Bowl. What I found interesting about the game is what happened after. Lamar Jackson broke Michael Vick's rushing record. Remember, Michael Vick is a player who set, he was a rushing quarterback. He actually set a record and then he was basically sent out of the league, committed a crime. Lamar Jackson is everybody's hero. He is an articulate guy who is likable by everybody on every team. And he is the best at his position at the most extraordinarily high profile position there is in football for a team that has a chance to play into February. So Harbaugh, the coach of the Ravens, has a very important decision to make. There's a chance that the Baltimore Ravens, if they win next week in Week 16, will have nothing to play for in Week 17. If that's the case, there is talk now that Lamar Jackson would not play, and actually Richard Griffin III, remember him, he used to be the up-and-coming quarterback. Robert Griffin used to be the up-and-coming quarterback, had the great season or two with the Redskins, and then really is a backup. But... Lamar Jackson will be benched in week 17. Why is that of note and why do I think about these things? Because they're playing the Steelers that week and that's a game that could have playoff implications. This issue comes up all the time in sports. When you have to figure out, in the NBA they call it load management. In Major League Baseball we just call it resting our guys. But the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office gets involved when you try to rest guys when it's a game that matters to the team who's playing or to other teams. So it's possible that the Steelers need to win in order to get in. And if Lamar Jackson's not playing, the odds of them winning are greater, quite obviously. It would have a huge impact on the line and on the game. Would the NFL step in and make the Ravens play Lamar Jackson? Not a chance. It is in the best interest of the NFL for Lamar Jackson to be healthy and to play all the way through the NFL playoffs. 
He's the best chance the NFL has of great ratings. Can you imagine a Mahomes-Jackson championship game? But what do you do if you're a Steelers fan or the owner of the Steelers? What do you do if you know that you have to win and get in, yet there are people hoping that Lamar Jackson does play? Well, when I had this situation with the Marlins, it was very simple. We had a chance to eliminate the Mets from the playoffs almost every year back in 2007, 2008, 2009. And we had nothing to play for except our own pride in trying to win as many games as possible. But we had an opportunity to rest our guys. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure that we kept the integrity of the game. And to do that, you play your best players whenever there's a game that matters. So then how can I be telling you that if I were the Ravens, I wouldn't play Lamar Jackson? The reason is football's different. You could argue in baseball every play, you could sprain your ankle, you could tear your ACL, you could get hit on the hand with a pitch, hit in the head with a pitch, God forbid the face. I get it, those happen. In football, the rate of injury is far more significant. The rate of significant injury is far more significant and higher. You cannot play your best players if there's nothing to play for. If it does not impact your team in any way, This is when owners correctly are completely selfish and they do what's in the best interest of their team, not in the best interest of the league in general. When you're looking at collective bargaining or other issues around football or major sports, you have to act as a group. And I don't mean collusion. But when you're talking about on field, every owner is the same way. Every owner is selfish. And I completely agree with it. Janoris Jenkins. Have we talked about him today? This is an important subject to me, at least, because it speaks to our society right now and what's acceptable and what's not, and what the third rail is and what it's not. Let me set the stage. Nor Jenkins is a 31-year-old defensive back for the New York Giants. He's a fine player. Some would argue he's the best defender on the Giants. I would argue he's a defender on the Giants. Has he helped the team win three, four games? He's been fine. Well, he was called out on Twitter and called out basically the team and the performance of the New York Giants, and he responded on Twitter with the following quote, I only can do my job, dot, 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 retard. This was someone who had DM'd him or put something on Twitter, and then Jenkins responded with that, basically what I would call, it's not just an insult, the word retard is something that you just should never use anymore. It used to be used to describe the condition of an individual who is mentally challenged. Now we describe it, if you got, literally, they would measure your IQ, and if you didn't have a high enough IQ, you were referred to as retarded or a retard. But now, we, in 2020, that is a pejorative word that is used to make fun of someone who you perceive to be stupid. Not that you have proof of it, who you perceive to be given what they've said or what they've tweeted. But then Jenkins did something that I can't understand. There was a little pressure online, and when the Twitter mob talks, people have to listen. There was a little pressure over his use of that word, and he responded in the most bizarre way that is completely unacceptable. He said, where I come from, that is not a bad word at all. That's a slang word, and I speak in slang, and there's nothing wrong with that. Can you imagine the provincial thinking if each of us were able to dismiss our own behavior by simply saying, well, that's how we do it where I'm from. 
That's how we say it where I live. That's how my friends and I do it. Do you think at a meeting of the KKK that it's okay the way they talk because everyone around them is doing it? Does that make racism okay? Is it okay to say anything you want and use a word that is completely unacceptable when there are easily available synonyms that you could use that would not be offensive but would be equally as descriptive? Jenkins easily could have said, I only can do my job. You don't know blank. I only can do my job. You are not an athlete. He could have basically shaded this guy or woman on Twitter in a much more effective way. And on top of that, he could have kept his job. So the Giants made him apologize. I've been through this. Here's how it works. You see your player do something bad. You immediately call first the player, then the agent. You never reach the player the first try. So you call and you text. You then reach the agent. You tell the agent what's going on. The agent then contacts the player because the player will respond to the agent before he responds to the team. It's like the etiquette of the current professional athlete. Their phone etiquette puts the R in rude. It puts the F in frustrating for me because anytime I'm trying to reach a player, I'm hopeful that they'll respond quickly, but I'm cognizant that if I don't catch them at the right time, either they won't respond or it'll get so buried below 100 texts that they'll never see it or at least be able to claim they never saw it. Well, the Giants did get in touch with Jenkins, and they asked him, what exactly were you thinking, were you doing, you better apologize. So instead of apologizing, he went through an entire rant about how it's perfectly fine what he did, but I guess I have to say I'm sorry, because that's the way things go here. Well, that wasn't good enough for the Giants, and they released him. Now, in baseball, releasing somebody, it's not a big deal, you still have to pay him. In basketball, the Heat are wondering whether they should release Deion Waiters right now after his latest suspension. But if they do, they're going to have to pay his entire salary. As you know and you're hearing, the only way to avoid paying the salary would be to get into a grievance. But in football, the money's not guaranteed. So they can release Jenkins and basically get off without paying him his salary next season or even the remaining million and a half dollars that he had this season. Football players better get guaranteed contracts in their next collective bargaining agreement, or they better start watching what they tweet and how they act. I know what you're saying. You're saying players can kick women in elevators, get released, and get immediately re-signed and make just as much money. You can say players can get suspended for hitting other players over the head, and it's an indefinite suspension, Miles Garrett, but it may not last into next season. I don't think it will. But yet Jenkins ends up released. Does he benefit from this? In his mind, he is benefiting because he gets off the Giants and he's got a chance to latch on to a team who can play in the playoffs. Well, isn't that interesting? That he could actually benefit and get out of a bad situation by doing something hurtful and harmful to others in the public arena of social media. We cannot reward this type of behavior. We cannot allow Jenkins to get away with explaining to us intelligent fans and people who are watching football and basically paying his salary through cable, through jerseys, through everything that we do to increase revenue of the NFL, we cannot say it's okay. We cannot allow another team to sign Jenkins. I'm not calling for a blackball of Jenkins the way people think that, that, that Kaepernick got blackballed. I'm not calling for collusion saying Jenkins should never play again. I'm calling for sensitivity training 
but I don't mean the classroom type where you can blow it off or the online class where you spend 40 minutes doing a harassment training to check the box that you've done it. I'm talking about real conversation to explain to him and every other player that just because you grew up around a certain way of looking at the world, that doesn't give you an excuse to look at today's world the same way. This is an opportunity for us, and if we don't take it, that's our mistake. So let's make sure that we're heard and every football team understands that what Jenkins did is wrong and we're not going to tolerate it. Every day on uh, Nothing Personal, I'm lucky enough when I'm on CBS Sports HQ, which I am now, or just if you're listening to the, to the pod, you're following me on Twitter at David P. Sampson. I appreciate that. We do a segment called So You Want to Talk to Sampson. And this is when people DM me, which is direct message. I guess you go in Twitter and you hit the envelope and you send a note. And for whatever reason, it then pops on my phone or on my Twitter and I read it. I try to return as many as I can at David P. Sampson. And I come up with a topic that you come up with and I cover it every day. I choose one. Today, I'm choosing one that is one of my favorites. So you want to talk to Sampson, huh? Well, you got me. Someone texted, tweeted, DM'd that they wanted to know what it was like to negotiate a contract with Scott Boris. Scott Boris, the guy who just negotiated record deals for Steven Strasburg, and then Garrett Cole broke Steven Strasburg's record, and then a great big deal for Anthony Rendon. So I'm going to do this topic, and I'm going to tell you exactly what it's like to negotiate with Scott Boris, because I've done it. And I'm going to do it from the beginning all the way to the very end. So to start with, we come up with when we're drafting players, we take a look at who the player agents are. And if a player has Scott Boris as an agent coming out of high school or college, we will do everything we can not to take that player because we don't want to be involved with Boris at all. There are some times that we have no choice because the player is just someone who we really want, like Jose Fernandez, who had Scott Boris as an agent. So we'll look past it. But in a tie situation, we will go away from Boris every single time. So we get a player on the team. We're very aware of who the agent is. We keep track of it. We have a spreadsheet. This was before Google Docs. It was, it was a literally a hard copy that we would carry with us to each game that had a list of every player, who the agent was, how much service time that player had, how many options that player had, because you only have, have a certain number of options before you end up getting released or becoming a free agent. So we'd carry the roster with us. That's the 40-man roster. And we'd always know who the Scott Boris clients are. So as the clients get older and they get closer to free agency, we start thinking about what we're going to do. Unfortunately, the tragedy of Jose Fernandez, we know what happened, but we had already made a decision that Jose Fernandez, we were not going to negotiate with Scott Boris to try to sign Jose Fernandez. There'd be no way that we had the money to retain him given the contract that we had given to Giancarlo Stanton and unfortunately, Wei in Chen. But the point is that we had made that decision in advance. We were going to hold on to him. There are some players who are represented by Scott Boris who we know we want to try to sign in free agency. So the first thing we do is identify, we get a list of free agents. MLB gives you a list, and it's really for three years running. So you can plan who the free agents are over the course of three years. You can plan what your payroll is over the course of three years and figure out who you're going to go after. So if we identify a Scott Boris client, the first thing we do is we make a decision internally what our final number is going to be, what Boris is going to ask, and then in what stage we are going to give in to what he's going to ask. So let's just take 
in the example of Anthony Rendon, who just signed $245 million deal over seven years. If we were looking at signing Rendon, we would call Scott Boris and we would say, and we would not wait until after the World Series when he becomes a free agent, we would make it known during the course of the season. You may think that that's tampering if you're the Nationals. Well, every team tampers. Every single team tampers every single day of the year. It happens. We all deny it because it's against the rules, but there's not one player who we've ever acquired who we had not tampered with. There's not one player who we did not know whether they were going to pick up their option before we decided to trade them or whether we were going to trade for a player who we didn't know whether they would sign a long-term deal if a long-term deal is what we wanted. There's not one player we trade for where we wouldn't know what their arbitration number is and where they stood in arbitration. My point is there is communication going on all the time. This is not stealing signs. This doesn't impact the integrity of the game. This is real life how to run a team. So we would tell Boris during the course of a season, we have interest in Rendon. He would put us on a list. We would go on our way. We'd have a piece of paper which had where Rendon fit in our payroll. We would list each player, what their money was, and add it up and make sure that we were on budget. Then as soon as the World Series would end, we would call Boris and we would say this would, be, this would be the GM of the team. We always had the GM deal with Boris. The assistant GM would deal with Boris Associates and Boris himself, when it was time to negotiate, would deal with me or with the owner. So Boris would know we'd have interest. We would go at Boris with an offer. The offer would be when you, when you know it's going to take seven years, the first offer is four years, 20 million a year. Boris would say, I do not respond to that offer. That does not even merit a response, but that's a response to us. He knows we have room to go and we do. He knows we've got average annual value and also years. We then submit another offer. This time we'd go to five years, 25 a year, 125 over five. He would then say, that's not going to get it done. You're getting closer in years, but he would give us an entire list of players of why Rendon would not be at 25 a year. But we knew that Rendon for us was $32 million. We were going to stop at 32 times six. He then calls and says, listen, there's great interest from the Rangers, Nationals, Dodgers, Angels, Phillies. He's doing that in order to get us to cave. We then call Boris back and say, listen, we're willing to go to six years at $30 million. That's it, 180 over six. He would say, is that a final? And we would say, we're going to put it in writing. This is our offer. But we wouldn't say final because we knew we had one place to go if we really wanted him. Boris then goes around to the other team, circles back to us and says, okay, if you want him, it's going to take 245 over 735 a year. We then would have an opportunity to say, no, we have no interest at that level. However, let us know if you don't get that from another team. If Boris calls us back because he doesn't have it, we know that he does not have it. If he calls us back and says he has it, but it's with another team, we know he doesn't have it. But if he calls us back and says, if you hit 245 over seven, he's yours right now. That's how Boris gets the 245 over seven. When we want the player at that point of the phone call, we say, you've got a deal. And then it gets bad. Then Boris says, we're going to sign this. But at the press conference, I need to be at the table during the press conference. That to me is a hard no every time I spoke to him. But if you've watched YouTube, you've seen him at the table of every press conference I've ever done with him. 
because at the end of the day, I can't stand to hear his voice anymore. I can't stand to negotiate anything anymore. And he knows that he wants to be front and center. So we give him that because we've gotten the player we wanted. We overpaid. We gave too many years. And we had a deal with him at a press conference. Have we won? Has he won? Has the player won? The bottom line is when you negotiate with Scott Boris, it's degrees of losing for everyone who's not the player. But if the Angels get a ring, guess what? It was all worth it. You know, the winter meetings just finished. And uh, if you've never been to a winter meetings, it's pretty fascinating. We've talked about what happens on the baseball side. But if you've ever been to the lobby of the winter meetings, they happen at all these very big hotels. It is a bunch of people trying to get a job and a bunch of members of the media trying to get a scoop. And they're trying to stop executives as they walk through the lobby, going from room to room or going out to dinner or going outside to run. Yes, I'm speaking from personal experience. And sometimes you stop and talk to the media. Sometimes you stop and talk to someone looking for a job. But most times you just blow right through because you're going somewhere. So one of the most common topics when I've been asked to give speeches uh, this is sort of a So You Want to Talk to Samson Part 2. I've gotten a bunch of emails and questions over the years by people who want to know, how do you start in sports? How do you get a job with a team? What do you do? Well, I'm going to tell you a story about what to do, and this is from experience. So back with the Marlins, we would get about 200 resumes a week, minimum, that would come across my desk. And the resumes were from people trying to enter in any department, from sales, marketing, finance, baseball operations, anything, because people wanted to work for the team. So the first thing you have to do when you want a job is you have to think to yourself, do I actually want to be in sports? Because many people think they want to be in sports, but they don't. So my first word of advice is being in sports is not glamorous. You're not sitting around with athletes talking. You're not watching batting practice. You're there to do a job. And what I'm looking for when I'm hiring is people who know the difference. So if your cover letter right now starts with, I've been a fan of baseball my whole life, that immediately gets ripped up. If it says, I've been a fan of the Marlins my whole life, that gets ripped up. If your cover letter says, it's been my dream to work for a sports team, that gets ripped up. I don't care what your dream is. I care whether or not you can do a job that I want you to do so that I don't have to work quite as hard as I've been working. Anytime you interview, that's what you're trying to convince the person who's interviewing you, that you can make it easier for them to look better while doing less work. So your cover letter would say, here are my qualifications. You lay them out in a three-paragraph letter. No spelling mistakes. Don't use spell check. I eliminate 50% of resumes solely because of spelling mistakes. If you're lazy, you use something called spell check. Do you know what spell check doesn't catch? Two versus two, T-O-O -O versus T-O. It doesn't catch your versus your, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E versus Y-O-U-R. It doesn't catch any words that could make sense, but don't and I'm gonna read every line of your letter and every word of your resume. One spelling mistake, one spacing mistake, and you don't have what I call ATD, attention to detail, which means you don't have J-O-B. You're in the trash can. What's the next thing I look for? 
any resume that has a staple in it is in the garbage. I've been around working in the world since I finished law school in 1993. For 26 years, I've been around. My resume, which is always on handy, on hand and updated, is always one page. If you think that you've done so much that you deserve a staple, then you can go ahead and do that for somebody else. So now we've got a one-page stapleless resume. We've got a cover letter that's perfect, that is in complete sentences with proper punctuation, that says immediately what it is that you can do to help me run my team. I'm not interested in what you've been doing. I'm interested in the job you're applying for and how you have experience, and if no experience, how you can do that job. 20% of cover letters that I get give me an explanation about wanting to be in sports, how they can do the job, but that they're interested in any opportunity in the company. That ends up in the garbage. I'm not going to decide for you what you want to do. You've got to decide and tell me quickly. You've got one minute to get my attention. In the first paragraph of your cover letter, I want to know the job you've applied for and why you're good at it. Now, let's say we call you in for the interview. Here's an example for those watching. If you're not watching and listening, an example of someone who walked into an interview and did the following walked into my office, took a piece of gum out of his mouth, and put it in my garbage can. I kid you not. He took a piece of gum from his, in his right hand, put it in a garbage can, and extended his right hand saying, nice to meet you. I sat him down, and I explained to him that he was not getting the job, but I was going to do a mitzvah, a blessing. I was going to help him potentially ever get employed again, and I told him what he did wrong. You don't use the garbage can of the person with whom you're interviewing. You don't walk in chewing gum. You look professional, you walk in, and you shake the hand of whoever you're interviewing with, and you sit down. During that interview, no matter what the first question is, and this is what I love to do while interviewing, is I would ask a question completely irrelevant. So what do you see yourself doing in five years? It's a trap. Whatever the first question is when you're interviewed, your first answer is what you can do to help the person who's interviewing you do his or her job better. Explain to him or to her why you can do the job you came in for. So what are you going to be doing in five years? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what. As soon as you hire me, I will be able to do the following four things immediately. I am confident that what I bring to the table, given my experience or given my education, is enough to start and hit the ground running from day one. I'm not thinking about five years. I'm thinking about helping you right now today, and I'm ready to start. And if they ask you to start tomorrow, you're ready. If they ask you to move to another office or another city, you move immediately. If you want to be in sports, you've got to be willing to move. You've got to be willing to work in any sport. Send out an application to the lacrosse league, major league soccer. I don't care if you hate soccer. You love it. It's an opportunity. You eventually want to be in baseball. You want to start in football. And you end up starting in basketball. That's how it goes. You want to work for the Knicks, but you end up at the Twin Cities in Minneapolis or the Quad Cities in Iowa. That's how it goes. You've got to be willing to move. If you're not, you're not going to have a career in sports.
So when you go through the interview, you answer, it's silence is okay. Don't fill silence with us or ums or total miscellaneous stuff that'll be boring. Answer the questions asked. Do you have any questions? An interviewer may say. The only question you should ever ask, what do I need to do to convince you that I need to start tomorrow? And then you ask for the job. What's the first rule in sales? Anyone in sales watching this or listening? First rule in sales. The CBS Interactive people better know this. I bet they do. First rule in sales. Ask for the order. You don't leave a conversation without asking for the person to buy what you are selling. You leave an interview with the following sentence. I want this job. I am ready to start now. I am the perfect person for this job. If you think that sounds overconfident, that means you're not right for the job. If you think it sounds cocky or self-assured, you're not right for the job. That is how I would hire. I wanted people cocky and confident. I wanted people telling me that they were ready. I wanted people to differentiate themselves by telling me not what I can read on a resume, but when I would have a chance to speak to them on a phone or do an in-person interview, they got my attention in the first minute. It's sort of like dating when you interview. When you're on a date, don't you know in the first minute whether good things are gonna happen or bad things, right? Everyone says, oh, we gotta get through dinner. We're going too fast. You know in a minute. That's how it is when you're interviewing. The interviewer knows in the first minute whether he's distracted, interested in you, or whether he's going to hire you. So don't waste your minute with ums and ahs and miscellaneous, extemporaneous, extracurricular crap. Make sure you get right to the point. And the point is, I want the job. I can do the job. I will help you do your job better. I am qualified and I am ready. You may wonder how hard it is to get a job in sports. Well, given the criteria I just laid out, you will differentiate yourself immediately because the majority of your competition does have spelling mistakes on the resume. The majority of your competition cannot put three sentences together to make a paragraph. The majority of your competition competition has no chance to get a job. Follow the simple rules of having ATD, attention to detail, want it, And once you get there, work harder than the person who interviewed you ever dreamt that you would work, and you've got yourself a career in sports. One of the great things about this job is I get to sit around. I don't have an office with a door. I don't even have a cubicle. I have actually a desk. There's no space, actually. You're like rubbing knees and elbows with people. It's like I'm water skiing. And of course, you need sanitizer every day, and you can't leave anything because it gets stolen. And of course, it's tiny and it doesn't get cleaned enough. But the good news is you get amazing suggestions from people every day while you're getting the flu and potentially gonorrhea. Well, I got a suggestion from Jeremy St. Louis, who is a new anchor here at CBS Sports HQ, who is outstanding, and you should check him out on HQ if you haven't yet. He told me to watch a movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon. I had never heard of it, and I couldn't believe I had never heard of it. And I went home and I immediately watched it. I was surprised that it's Shia LaBeouf, because he's got a reputation. He's in a new movie called Honey Boy. So I figured that he was, you know, is he going to be good in this movie or not? But the other thing is, I had no idea, not just Dakota Johnson, but it's actually about someone with Down syndrome. And the actor in the movie, I want to get his name exactly right for you. In the movie, his name is Zach. He plays a character named Zach. And his name is Zach. Zach Gotzigan. 
Well, Zach Gottsigan has been studying to be an actor in the real world. He's got Down syndrome. And he plays a character with Down syndrome in the movie The Peanut Butter Falcon. Shia LaBeouf, who is public lewdness, public drunkenness. You think he's a total lunatic. It turns out the guy can act. It's a buddy movie. It's like Lethal Weapon with people you care about. It's like a runaway movie where Shia LaBeouf is running away. Zach is running away. They're each running from something different. And they end up combining to run away together. Why is it called the Peanut Butter Falcon? I'm not going to tell you. It is a surprise. This is a feel-good movie. You're going to say Dakota Johnson's in it, Melanie Griffith's daughter, along with Don Johnson. You're going to say, well, that's good. I saw her in Fifty Shades of Grey, I think. Fifty darker shades, Fifty Grey or somethings. Well, there's no nudity in this movie at all. She does give a performance that is mediocre because she's not really necessary to the movie. It's sort of like a love interest where you know how it ends, but the real point of the movie is the relationship that builds and develops between Zach and Shia's character. And it is a relationship that is far more intimate and filled far more with love than the manufactured sort of relationship between Dakota and Shia. So take an hour and a half of your life and watch this movie, The Peanut Butter Falcon. It's won the Audience Award. It's gotten a lot of attention. And if you've got nothing doing tonight, then you're doing that. Well, if I'm a Cubs fan, I got a lot to do tonight. I got to figure out how I'm going to get through it. You know, it was really hot and sexy to be a Cubs fan before 2016 because you sort of felt like this lovable loser. We haven't won in a 100 years. We keep trying, and there's the curse of the Billy Goat. There's the Steve Bartman curse. There's the ball through Leon Durham's legs. Every which way but loose, we can never win, even when we think we're going to win. We work with a guy here on HQ named Chris Hassel, another great anchor, who actually thought in 2003 that his Cubs were going to win. And so I just walk in and show him our World Series ring when we beat him in seven games. So the Cubs then are the lovable losers. Everybody's rooting for them or against them. You either love them or hate them. They've got nationwide appeal. Then they bring in Joe Madden. Then they bring in Theo Epstein. Epstein. I think Coca may tell me it's Epstein, but I think it's Epstein. And then it turns out they win the whole thing in 2016 in what's going to be an absolute dynasty. The Cubs are going to start winning one after the next. They have built a team that is there to stay. They've got brilliant people leading it, a brilliant manager. Everything's going to be perfect. Well, wouldn't you know it, something happened on the way to the Dynasty Theater. They got sidetracked at a 7-Eleven or a Wawa. And when they came out staggering, slumping, and stuttering, they realized they no longer have the players to compete, and they no longer can win. Their window has closed. Shocking, isn't it, that the Cubs are not the dynasty we thought. They're the Marlins. Not even the Marlins. The Marlins won two championships in six years in 97 and 03. They're my Marlins. I won in 03. The Chicago Cubs are the Florida Marlins. Take that, Chicago. I know you're listening. And how do I know this? Because Jed Hoyer is their GM. When you've got a GM and a president of baseball operations, pay attention to who's giving the quotes. When there's good news or something exciting to announce, it'll be the president of baseball operations. When there's something negative, it'll be the GM. So the GM, Jed Hoyer, he said when asked if he sees a clear path for his team this winter, quote, I think it's impossible to say clear. I don't know what that means. 
Some of that clarity is based on the free agent market. I don't know what that means either. That's doublespeak. We're going to get back to it. We have a sense of, at this point, which teams are interested in our players. Sound the alarms. You Cubs fans are screwed. We have a sense of which teams are interested in our players. Those aren't fighting words. Those are shedding payroll words. Here's what Jed Hoyer should have said, or what you really wish Theo had said. Yeah, we didn't make any moves at these winter meetings, but we know very well that we need to get better, and we are uncovering, looking under every rock. We know exactly how much every free agent wants, and we are willing, we see a fit with a pitcher and a position player. We want this team to get better. Is there a chance we're going to have to make a trade off our current team that's only won one World Series since 2016 and has gotten hugely expensive? Yes. We don't want the same team to take the field next year because it wasn't good enough. Bringing in David Ross was just the first step. Now we get better on the field. There is help out there, and we know the parameters of that help, having just spent four days in San Diego. That's a quote of a team trying to win. That's the quote of a team that's not looking to shed payroll. That is the opposite of what you heard from Jed Hoyer. Jed Hoyer saying some of the clarity is based on the free agent market. Does that mean that because Stroudsburg got $35 million a year and Cole got $36 million, that they're no longer going to go after position players or pitching because they're going to slide in too close to that and that's out of their budget? That's exactly what that means. Why not just come out and say it? Why not remind people when you signed uh, you Darvish and John Lester? Why not come out and remind people of the big deals you signed with Jason Hayward as an example? The problem when you sign long-term deals and they don't work out is your fan base forgets. They demand change and you're stuck with these contracts. You Darvish came out today, bless his soul, and said he will not be traded by the Cubs because he has a full no-trade clause and he loves Chicago. Do you know why you Darvish can't be traded by the Cubs? Because no one wants him. In a pitching-starved league, you Darvish is wanted by nobody at his number. It's an overpay. What about Jason Hayward? You reading rumors about him? Overpay. Can John Lester get traded? Nope. Overpay. I get overpays. I've done overpays. But that's what causes you to have to underpay or sit out at future free agent sweepstakes. You think the Los Angeles Angels, if they don't win next year, they're going to get right back in with the best free agents, having spent $35 million on Rendon and $36 million or $35.5 million on Trout? No. You think the Yankees are going to go after the number one pitcher available next year if Cole blows out or if the Yankees, God forbid, don't make it to October? No. They are doing it now. Sorry, Cubs. It ain't going to happen in the Central next year. God, the Knicks are pathetic. They make me cry. Can you imagine? They fire Fisdale, whatever. They bring in Miller. He's fine. He's an interim guy. But then they actually say, they actually say that you may not be the coach the entire season. And I quote, should the team's faltering season necessitate another move? What? The faltering season? It's faltered. There's no present tense. Are you trying to get the eighth spot in the playoffs? No, you're in the lottery. So why is it that you're making it be known that you're doing an all-out coaching search right now? 
and that you're looking for Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson or Tom Thibodeau because you need someone who's got a history of the Knicks, who understands what it is to work in New York, what you really mean is you need someone who understands that Jim Dolan is the irrational owner and what he says goes. Well, I'm familiar with what it can be to work with irrational owners. Not saying that mine was. What I am saying is I've seen them. I've worked with them. I've heard them talk. And sometimes all of us can be irrational. Sometimes all of us can use owner's prerogative. Sometimes all of us can do things that may not actually work, but it comes from a good place. The problem with Dolan is everything he does doesn't work and nothing he does comes from a good place. When it's just about you, you have no chance to be the steward of your team and lead your team into the playoffs or, God forbid, into the NBA Finals, which is exactly where the Knicks need to be. It's their rightful place for the NBA. Why would Jeff Van Gundy, who gets to sit on the sidelines and get paid tremendous dollars without the bags under his eyes? Do you remember what Jeff Van Gundy looked like when he was coaching? Do we have an up-close picture, Coca, of Jeff Van Gundy? He had bags that you felt like they were like cushicles. You felt like you could go to the beach and put like sand toys like under his eyes. He looked like death warmed over. And now he looks just bad. How great is that? Why would he switch it? Tom Thibodeau, no. Mark Jackson, why was he fired by the Warriors after they won 51 games? Why is it they brought in Steve Kerr because Steve Kerr was such a better coach? Listen, I like Mark Jackson. And if you're watching the show, I'm doing the Mark Jackson shimmy. Anyone remember that? When he would score with Patrick Ewing, he'd do the shimmy. I like him. I like when he does that in a suit on the sideline. He got fired from Golden State because he didn't get along with anyone in the organization. But does that mean he can't be a good manager or a good coach? No. Look at Joe Girardi. He didn't get along with anyone, and he moved on to be a wanted guy in New York, and now he got another job in Philly. So there's a chance Mark Jackson could be good, but why would the Knicks want him? Only because he played for New York? Jim, you're not making one ounce of sense. Pick of the day. So I did get some calls last night. I admit it. I did. And the calls were from people who had been following my pick of the day, and they had been betting my pick of the day, and they hadn't lost. And they were upset that I went with the Jets. And while it's true that I had heard of Lamar Jackson, I will admit that I thought that Sam Darnold would keep the game closer than 42-21, and it wasn't even that close. I hope you forgive me. When you're making a pick every day, you're going to lose once in a while. But I think I've got a pick, and I want to explain why I like it. I like the Lakers tonight over the Heat, and I actually thought the line should be about a field goal. It turns out it's a touchdown without the extra point, but I still like it. Now, how could I be choosing against the Heat when they're undefeated at home? When the Lakers had an off day and there's a good chance they could suffer from the South Beach flu? Well, LeBron James will not let his team go out. He will not let his team get the South Beach flu. This isn't like Houston coming in. This isn't like Carmelo coming in. LeBron knows way better than to let his team or himself suffer from what we love to call the SBF because the SBF always causes a W-I-N for the home team. But LeBron James is coming to Miami. It's his favorite place to win. Remember, we had a pick of the day when we had him going up against, who was it, Coca, where we had LeBron and we knew he'd have a great game. Come on. 
he can't remember, I can't remember. Maybe it's Ambient or something. I just, I've lost my memory. We do these shows. I'm like Will Ferrell in old school that I do this 45-minute show every day and I get in the zone and then when the show's over, I can't remember where my jacket is, that type of thing. I know we had LeBron and I know that he very badly wanted to outplay another player Well, and I took him and we won. That's the same tonight. LeBron over the heat minus six. Why it works out, he wants to win in Miami. He will be the guy. And that's my wait to see as well. But it's a little more complicated Remember the wait to see is part of my show. What we do here is we give you a wait to see and then we keep track of it. I have a whole spreadsheet here and we keep track and when we're wrong, we'll tell you. When we're right, we'll tell you because everything in sports and in life is always a wait to see and we always say it. Some people say wait and see, but I like wait to see. My wait to see is about tonight's Heat game, Lakers game. If you've been watching LeBron, you've been watching him this season and you'll notice that he's actually scoring a little less rebounding a little less, but his assists are a little higher. He's passing the ball more than he has in previous seasons. He loves passing it to AD. That's right, Anthony Davis. Got it, Coca. So my wait to see. LeBron decides tonight is his night to score, not assist. LeBron will outscore Anthony Davis tonight, and the Lakers will win by six. That's a pick, and that's a wait to see. Before we finish here, I want to send out my prayers and thoughts. I, I've really never liked that expression, thoughts and prayers. But David Stern, the former commissioner of the NBA for 20 years, one of the great commissioners of all time, a Hall of Famer, he suffered a brain hemorrhage during lunch in New York and is in the hospital having had brain surgery. I don't know his prognosis. I don't know his future. But I do know he is a man who changed basketball forever. My thoughts and prayers are with you and your family, David, because with you, above all, you taught me and everybody else something. It's just business. It was never anything personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.